Okay, anyway, Mars. Yeah, I found a whole bunch of information on Mars and I wanted to share some some interesting facts that I come, came across and kind of how they apply to the subject we were talking about this morning. You probably know that Mars is named after the Roman god of war. And that we've had foreign false gods for thousands of years. People have invented their own gods and worshipped them. And, and when you talk about things like martial law and martial arts and those kinds of things, the word, the word martial comes out of Mars, comes out of that word for the god of war and fighting and, and things like that. And, and all those terms are, are related. And so the one interesting fact about Mars it's very close in size to the Earth. It's like I talked today. It um, has the same rotation, has the same tilt. Uh, it's kind of like our twin planet. It's got a bunch of craters on it. Ninety-three percent of those craters are on one side. So there's about you know seven percent on one side, and ninety-three on the other. It's almost like you know it looks like at this, the speed at which Mars turns. It's about a thirty-hour day. We have a twenty-four-hour day, so it's, we're close. But it, it's almost as if all the craters hit, most of the craters hit within a half an hour period. Like it's just this barrage of craters. And most scientists these days will tell, well, they're uniformitarianism. And that means that they think that the universe has been relatively the same for all of history. That things are slowly progressing and if, th- if anything changes, it's a very gradual, gradual change and nothing, and you know, you'll get an, an asteroid here and an asteroid there. Whereas most creationists are catastrophists, where that means we believe that the universe and our world have been hit by some pretty hard catastrophes, and it hasn't been the same all the time. That we've that we live in a young planet and a young universe, and there's been some wild things going on in that short time, and Mars is just another evidence of that. Here, one side is just plastered with a whole bunch of meteorites and it's got craters all over the place as if something big hit. And, it, and nobody knows why, for sure, because we weren't around when they hit. And when God struck the earth at the time of Noah's flood, I wonder if maybe that was part of a side effect, that whatever he struck the earth with also struck Mars at the same time. And you know, can't see it on the earth because we've got wind and waves and erosion and that kind of stuff, but you can clearly see it on Mars where they don't have so much atmosphere. Um, it's hard to know for sure, but uh, the secular world would like you to believe that we've been around for billions of years. Billions and billions and, and that everything has been happening in this slow, steady progression and, and the universe is all uniform for, for all these billions of years. And, and of course, there are tons of evidences that we can measure and demonstrate that our planet and the whole solar system has, has lived this rather short, catastrophic life. I mean, we've got billions of dead things buried in rock layers, laid down all over the earth, like Ken Ham likes to say. And what would have caused that? Besides a global catastrophe that killed billions of dead things and buried them so that they could be fossilized. And we've got volcanoes and earthquakes and mountains that have risen up. Mount Everest is covered with clams, fossilized clams. So obviously it was covered with water at one point and it was forced, and like the Bible in Psalms says, that the after the flood, the mountains rose up and the valleys sank down. And obviously Mount Everest was shoved away five miles up in the sky and it's got fossilized clams from a catastrophic flood that buried a bunch of animals on it and they're fossilized at the top of a mountain because I, I'm, last time I checked, clams don't climb mountains and, uh, <laughs> and then die and get fossilized. So, and there's, uh, there's other really neat things that you can measure. The, the biggest desert in the world, the Sahara Desert, keeps getting bigger little by little. It's called desertification. Any, most deserts keep getting bigger. And if you measure backwards from the time, as, as fast as it's growing, if you measure backwards, it's only a few thousand years old. You know, maybe 5,000 years old or so. Same thing with the Great Barrier Reef, the biggest reef in the world. It's growing and growing because new corals encrust and new corals encrust on top of the dead ones and it keeps going. Well, if you, you can measure the rate at which it grows and if you measure backwards, it's a few thousand years old. 
And there's, there's, and there's lots of these kinds of measurements that you can take and say, well, how long have we been here? How long has that candle been burning? And, and Mars, I think, is just uh, an extraterrestrial one, one that we can measure that's outside of our planet. But another interesting fact, factoid that many early civilizations on Earth were there's a lot of peoples, a lot of various nations and kingdoms and, and ancient cultures that were all frightened of Mars. They were scared. Like They wrote these stories and these legends that you can still read because we've got them written in history. But they, it's like they had this fear of, of Mars, the, like the, the planet, the God. Like, and they ascribed the planet Godhood. Like they, they, this little, you go outside tonight. Well, I don't know if you can see it tonight. But on a good night, when Mars is in view... And it's this little tiny point. I mean, if you can find it, it's this little teeny tiny point of light. The way you can tell planets from stars is that the planets don't flicker. But they're just as small. And, and it's got kind of a reddish color to it if you look close enough. How would anyone be scared of that? A little tiny dot. But it's like the, the things that they wrote, it sounds like they were scared of this planet. And, and people wonder, well, why was that? Genesis 10 describes Nimrod as a mighty hunter before the Lord. And that's not a complimentary term, the way they talk about him. It was it, it kind of the wording that it used implies a ruthless kind of lust for power sort of guy. Someone who was not a nice person, but someone who conquered by force and was ruling by force and and he established a kingdom in Babylonia that's where you know they started building the Tower of Babel, and a lot of people think that Nimrod was kind of the king over that area. He was in the Tigris and Euphrates region, and he con- consolidated his power and established a state religion. And most of the false religions today, most of the various cult behaviors, can you can tie them back to these Babylon kind of mystery religion kind of things that that all the cultish behaviors that still are around today stem back to Babylon. And, and you can see that. that and we, we tie that a lot to Nimrod because we think he was the one in charge there. And that he basically called himself emperor and that he wanted to be worshipped like a lot of emperors do down through history. And, and he started things like worshipping stars and planets and, and, and that, you know, taking astrological things and turn them into wonders that control your life and that. Um, But they think that one of the reasons they were building a tower to reach the heavens to show how great men were was to have an observatory so that they could look at the stars and worship them and see the planets and, and uh, you know, consider them their gods. And they had this kind of, most people think it was a ziggurat or a pyramid kind of tower that they were building that maybe, Nimrod had, had actually spent some time in Egypt and, and around Mesopotamia and studied some of their mystery religions in Egypt that were grown out of the, you know, after the flood. Uh, Nimrod came out of Ham's family line, and uh, who's a tr- uh, descendant of Cain, but uh, the Babylonians associated the planet with their god Marduk. And I think I talked about Marduk back when I was going through Daniel. We talked about Marduk and Nebo, who were these Babylonian gods. And Mars was connected with Marduk. And as other nations adopted the same god, they just changed the name. So they worshipped that, that, that same kind of planet worship religion came out of the Babylonians and, and Marduk. And they renamed with their own culture's language the same God and the same planet. So Mars actually was known as Baal in the Middle East. You know, you've heard lots about Baal. It's that same God that grew out of that that ancient tradition. And they really associated some fear with the planet, which just sounds crazy because it's this little tiny speck in the sky way far away. If you, if you go, um, if you, you would think that only a psychotic person would look at a spot in the sky and be afraid of it and worship it. And treat it like that's their God, that's their Creator. 
But like we talked about today, people do that today. They consider the stars their creators. Um, even Islam today stems out of moon god worship. If you know anything about the, the history of the Muslim religion, it, even before it was Muslim, even way before Muhammad, there was, they had different names for this moon god. Sometimes they called, called it Sin, um, which is a name, not the action. Um, Hubal, um, Al-Ilah, which is where they, Allah came from, because they called it Al-Ilah, and then they kind of shortened it up to Allah. And it really stems out of a moon god worship. They, there's a stone at Mecca. In Saudi Arabia, they've got the shrine at Mecca. Mecca is a town, and at Mecca, they've got this shrine, and they've got a rock in it. And the rock is a piece of meteorite that hit the earth. And they say that it struck um, probably like 2,000 years or so before Muhammad was ever around. So this is a long time ago. And they took this rock and they set up, they built a shrine and they set up this rock and, and said that this is a piece of God that fell from the heavens and they've been worshiping it in one form or another ever since. So for thousands of years, they've been worshiping this moon god and this piece of her that fell down from the heavens. And some, and it's kind of like some people came out of space or, or something came out of space and people started worshiping it. So if, if it's far away, they're worshiping a piece of their, you know, the stars and planets and then something came out of space and, they, and it, the legend says that the stone started out as white when it hit the earth and then people touched it and it absorbed their sins and turned black. And so it's a black rock today. I'm guessing it was a black rock since it hit. But legend says it was white and it turned black. And, and, and so Al-Ilah, the moon god, eventually became Allah and Muhammad started getting people to come there and, and that was one of the parts of their five pillars of Islam. You're supposed to go to Mecca and people all around the world flock there every year by the thousands, you know, there's thousands of people down in this shrine and they're circling around this Mecca shrine and walking around and they're all trying to work to get close to, to, to the shrine where, where this rock is kind of cemented into the corner and they all want to try to touch it. You know, if I can touch the rock, it will absorb my sins and, and I'll be good. And it's this crazy kind of religion that stemmed out of this moon god worship that uh, that your sins can be sucked out by a rock, and anyway, um, that's just some of the stuff people do. Back to Mars, the the city Cairo in Egypt is another name for for Mars. Cairo is the came out of the Egyptian language. Um, I don't know if the Great Pyramids have anything to do with Mars because they were they, you know they line things up with stars and planets and and they very much had the same kind of worship of these celestial bodies. Um, Aries is the Greek name for Mars. You've probably heard Aries before. Um, remember when Paul went to the Aragopus the, or the Eropagus to preach? Eropagus is just the name for Mars Hill. Aries is Mars and the Gopus is a hill. So the Eropagus where Paul went to preach in Athens is Mars Hill. So that's another connection to this war god. And we still have connections to these false gods today. All, all our months are named after them. All our days of the week. Um, Sunday came out of the sun and day came from the word deig, which is a word for God, like general, you know, the Lord or, or God. Not not a proper name, but so Sunday is sun god. And then Monday is moon god. And Tuesday it comes from Taiwes, which is just another name for Mars, actually. So Tuesday is named after the the god of Mars. And um, so Tuesday is, is Mars Day. Odin is the, these are kind of the Norse names in the, as you go down the days of the week. Odin is Mercury. And so that's uh, Wednesday is Mercury Day. Thursday is Thor's Day. And you've all heard of Thor, the, the lightning god. And Thor is named after, is Jupiter, the god of Jupiter. So that's Thursday is Jupiter Day. And Friday is Venus Day. Which is uh, Freyadeg, which is a you know another Norse name for Venus, that god, and then Saturday is easy to kind of tell Saturn's day, and so they're all named after these gods that were these planets. So we've still got connections today with this heathen 
false god worship. It's, and it's amazing to think about when you stop and think how many connections we've got to this ancient pagan worship. But I bring all these ancient cultures up and Mars and, and all that because there's these interesting connections that may or may not connect with the Bible. Um, if you go to Joshua, um, Joshua in chapter 10, there was this big war and uh, a guy named Adonai Zedek who was the, the king of Jerusalem before the Jews got there. So the Jews had escaped Egypt. They wandered around the desert for 40 years and then they got into Israel, into that land. And the king of Jerusalem at the time, his name was Adonai Zedek. And, and he was scared of the Jews because they had come in and been successful in routing out some other cities. And he decided to form a coalition with other kings in the area. I think there were five different kings to attack the city of Gibeon because Gibeon had become friends with the Jews, with the Israelites who had moved in. And so Gibeon finds out that they're going to be attacked by these five kings, including Jerusalem king. And and he sends a message to Joshua asking for help. And, And God tells Joshua... Listen, don't be afraid. You go help them. Don't be afraid because I'm going to be there fighting for you. On your behalf, I'm going to take care of this. And this is what happened. In Joshua 10, at verse 9, it says, Joshua attacked them by surprise after marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord routed them before Israel. And Israel thoroughly defeated them at Gibeon. They chased them up the road to the pass of Beth Horon and struck them down all the way to Azekah and Machedah. As they fled from Israel on the slope leading down from Beth Horon, the Lord threw down on them large hailstones from the sky all the way to Azekah. They died, in fact, more died from the hailstones than the Israelites killed with the sword. The day the Lord delivered the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua prayed to the Lord before Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. Now what's interesting is these guys that they were attacking were worshipers of the planets they worshiped the sun they worshiped the moon they were gods to them and so by joshua praying for god to to make these celestial bodies freeze he was saying watch my god tell your gods what to do and so it's just an interesting connection with the pagan worship and and you know it would be an embarrassment if their gods were subservient to the god of israel and it says in verse 13 the sun stood still And the moon stood motionless while the nation took vengeance on its enemies. This event is recorded in the scroll of the upright one. And the sun stood motionless in the middle of the sky and did not set for about a full day. There has not been a day like it before or since. The Lord obeyed man for the Lord fought for Israel. So that's that's an interesting story and there's all sorts of implications that I'll get into. Um, But what was going on in the earth that day? What was happening because something was happening. Either the, the rotation stopped or the tilt went wonky so that you'd have more exposure to the sun or the progression around the Something was going on in the celestial bodies that God did so that they'd have more daylight and day. And also so that hailstones or maybe they're meteorites. I don't know. Something was falling out of the sky killing people in droves. Um, you guys have heard of Galileo. He's famous for developing the telescope and, and for being, he was the first one to see that Jupiter, they could see Jupiter by the naked eye because they were already worshiping it. But Galileo saw that Jupiter actually had four moons and he saw those with a telescope that he had built. And he also found that Saturn had rings that nobody had ever seen before. And so he was able to see things that people couldn't see with their naked eye through this telescope. And that was back in 1610. And then a guy named Herschel about not quite 200 years later, in 1780, he developed a better telescope because technology's been on the progress ever since. And through his telescope, he could see the planet Uranus that had never been discovered before that. And then in another six years after that, the same guy, with continuing to develop his telescopes, saw that Uranus had uh, a couple of moons. And then later on, he found a couple more moons. You know, as technology continued, as the lenses got better and the, the construction got better. So this telescope technology was, has been developing ever since Galileo started putting them together. And then in 1846, 
uh, now we're getting a little bit closer to our timing, a guy named Leverrier saw Neptune and saw that Neptune had a couple of moons and things that people had never seen before. And in 1877, we've got America by this point for a while, and the U.S. Naval Observatory had been put together. And, and this guy named Asaph Hall, who worked for the U.S. Naval Observatory, and they had a nice big fancy telescope by that day's standard, um, found that Mars, that, well, they'd seen Mars before as a planet, but they found in 1877 that Mars had two moons. And there's, uh, they're pretty small moons. They're very small moons, very close to the planet, um, which is why they were hard to see. The smaller one is almost black. It's a very dark colored material. And so that's why nobody ever seen it because they're so small and so close to the planet. Um, and they're, they're named Deimos and Phobos. And the Deimos, which is the bigger moon, goes around the planet just a little bit faster than the planet turns. It takes about a 30, um, just over 30 hours for the moon to go around the planet. So when you look up, if you were on Mars and you looked up in the sky, it's almost like it just stays there all the time because it goes around with the planet. So it's very slow moving. And the other one is named Phobos, and that's the one that's, that's very dark colored. And that one actually is the only body in the galaxy that we know of that rotates the opposite direction. Pretty much everything in the, in the galaxy rotates counterclockwise. And Phobos, the moon of Mars, rotates clockwise. And it rotates very fast clockwise. It only takes about seven and a half hours to go around the planet Mars. So if you were standing on Mars, you can actually watch it move. It's like moving across the sky like this. You can see the moon. So it'd be really, there's actually a, a probe, I think Curiosity, that went to Mars and filmed them on video. And you can see that Phobos moon going around Mars and moving as you watch it. So it's really kind of interesting. But So they found these two moons on Mars. Now here's what really makes it interesting. Jonathan Swift, you maybe heard of me, wrote Gold vs. Travels back in 1726. So this is over a 100 years before anybody knew that Mars had moons. And he, you've heard the story where he goes to, to Lilliput and the Lilliputians, the little people, you know, do things with him. And, and that's one story. And it's, well, it's actually a part of a, a bigger story. That's like the first chapter or the first part. But if you go to part three, in chapter three, he goes to, Gulliver goes to a different place called Laputa. And it's a flying island. It's this island that flies around where people are much more advanced in Europe than with their telescopes than or they're much more advanced in, in the island, the floating island Laputa, than they are in Europe. They have much better telescopes in this floating island, obviously, because they've got a floating island. But what's interesting is, is in 1726, Jonathan Swift wrote about these Laputans being able to see the moons of Mars with their telescope. And, the, and they describe them. They said there's two moons. There's one that's... that's you know, so far from the planet and one that's so far from the planet and one of them spins rather slow. It's like a, you know, I think he said like a 20-something hour cycle and the other one's like half that, like a 10-hour cycle. And so they described these moons uncannily similar to the actual moons that they found. You know, that was 1726 he wrote the story. It wasn't until 1877 that they actually were able to see the moons. So it's really weird. You wonder... Was that just a, a wild guess that he was able to come up that? A lot of people think, well, I don't know, a lot of people don't really know about this stuff, but you wonder, how did he know? There are legends that go back before Jonathan Swift wrote his stories, these ancient cultural legends that, uh, you know, they think they saw this stuff, that maybe there were eyewitness accounts of Mars, that people could see these things, but how would they see them? If Mars is, you know, it's over a hundred million miles away from us how did they see this stuff and but many cultures have legends that seem to be based on on the fact that mars was close enough to to see and to and to fear and to, and to link it to a god and to worship it as a god um there's a there's a, a greek myth about apollo's son apollo's another one of these greek gods and and his name was uh Phaethion. and he if you this, and that connects to the story of Joshua. Joshua called, prayed to God to stop the sun. Well, 
in the Greek story, Apollo's son, Phaethon, stopped the sun's course for a day. And, and I'm guessing it's kind of like you know every culture in the world, every ancient culture has flood stories. Because obviously there was a flood, so they tell stories about it, and it gets you know changed a little bit down through the ages. But I think this is probably the same thing that in the Joshua's day, the world stopped. If the world, or you know, the, everything, everybody could see that there was a longer day on one side of the planet and a longer night on the other side of the planet, and so we've got stories from various cultures that saw this happen and they told it and passed it down to their descendants. And since Joshua is historical the the cultures all over the world have legends and there's there's actually the greeks have a legend about phaethion stopping the sun um the new zealand maori people hey they would have been on the opposite side um have a myth about how their hero maui slowed the sun before it rose so they had kind of a darker you know darker side of the earth story there's a mexican myth about how um um, in the annals of ka Hitzlan, um, but it's a history of the empire of the Cohocan people of Mexico, those ancient cultures in Mexico. And they record a night that continued for an extended night. Like it wasn't just a single night, it was like a really long night. So there are these ancient cultural stories that connect to this Joshua 10 event. And it, 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 and it should be noted that the Amorites were, were sun and moon worshippers and that these deities in the sky have been forced to obey God, you know, as, as Joshua's coming in, that these people that worshipped the sun and they worshipped the moon, that, that they, there must have been a reason that God performed this particular miracle. There must have been a reason that He decided that He's going to stop the sky or stop the progression of the sun. Um, and this is the beginning of the occupation of the land. You know, this is when Joshua's moving in and leading the people. But I think that God decided that He was going to show these people who the real God was and say that He has power over everybody, over kings and kingdoms and the things that you worship in the sky answer to the one true God. So there are these civilizations that, and I want to connect it. I don't know if that happened. I want to draw some pictures. I brought a, Jeff helped me to bring a chalkboard up. It would be very difficult to have a day last 24 hours and not cause all sorts of catastrophes on the planet. You know, because stopping the earth would cause a lot of problems. Unless it was, you know, God, if God's doing a miracle, obviously He can do a miracle and hold everything together if He wants to. So what was going on the earth that day? Mars did a, a polar... They think Mars did a polar pass. Well, before I draw that, I want to also talk about there are lots of civilizations. If you remember back when we were going through Daniel and we timed the progression with the prophecy about the coming of Jesus and we timed that from the time when Daniel talked about, he, you know, he prophesied that there was going to be the abomination of desolation and, and there's going to be a certain number of days until the anointed one comes. And we timed it out and it was perfect. It was down to the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. But it was going by a Jewish, like we had to break down the, the Jewish years down into days and then recalculate them into current years because our years are 365 days and the Jewish years were 360 day years. Well, the Jews weren't the only ones that timed a year at 360 days. There were the, the Indians, not the American Indians, but the Indians in India, and the, the Persians and the Chaldeans and the, the Assyrians and the Egyptians. And they all timed the year as 360 days. And they weren't dumb people. They were watching the sky. They didn't have anything. They didn't have TV or Facebook. So they watched the sky and they had very accurate records of where the stars would be and where the, I mean, they worshiped them as their gods. And so they were very careful about time. So why did they have a 360 day year? There's an interesting thing that happens if you put the spin of Earth around the sun. Here's the sun. Earth's orbit is, is an ellipse. It's not a perfect circle. It's kind of an oval. So Earth is spinning around the, the planet, and Mars is too. Mars is, is the next ring out. But it, a lot of times you'll see them represented like that. But it's not these perfect circles that are outside each other. The idea that some people have is that maybe Mars 
maybe Mars's path actually a long time ago looked something more like that. And so that there were times when it came pretty close to the Earth. You know, every hundred or so years, you might have a close pass by where the Earth is coming around and Mars is coming around at the same time too, which would open up a possibility for people to actually be able to see Mars up close. And so you wonder if Mars is going by, you know, it, it could just be, you know, going by the edge. It could be that Mars passed overhead, like they actually intersected. It, you know, it's, we don't know because we weren't there, but it would cause a lot of problems if the, there are some speculations that there was a synchronous orbit between Mars and Earth. That Mars goes, that Earth goes around every 360 days, you know, back in ancient cultures, and that Mars went around at twice that rate. That, so 720 days? Yeah, 720 days. So it took Mars two years to make its orbit, and it took Earth one year, and every once in a while, they would get close, and they would change each other's orbits. And if Mars followed Earth, like they're going counterclockwise, like everything does except for that one moon around Mars, if Earth was preceding Mars, it would slow it down because Mars would pull on Earth through gravity. So if it slowed down Earth's orbit a little bit every time they passed, you could have your years get longer. So you might have 360 days at one point and 365 days later. And, it's in it, and you know, if enough of these passes, you'd have enough gravity to actually speed up or slow down the Earth's revolutions around the sun. So it's real interesting stuff to think about. Um, the, the idea is that the with that connects with Joshua um, is that they think with a synchronous orbit that it, it would be every 54 years there would be one a pass by on one side and every 108 years there would be a pass by on the other side going by their orbits. Um, but Mars, um, in its, depending on right now, in its connection, you know, it doesn't pass us like this these days. These days it, it does stay outside of our orbit. But there are times when it gets closer than it, you know. Sometimes we're closer together, and sometimes we're farther apart. At the closest today, it's 128 million miles, and at the farthest, it's 155 million miles. So it's you know, it's the sun is 93 million miles. So that gives you an idea of how far Mars is away from us. It's a long ways away, and would have very little effect on our gravity today. Um, but back then, they think that it's when it was closer, it was more like 89 or 81, 81, 82 million miles away. So it would be closer than the sun back then, and its farthest would be 210 million miles away. But um, we're talking when Joshua happened, it was probably around 1400 BC, and when that sun standstill event happened. And what they think. The conjecture is, we don't really know for sure, but the conjecture is that it could have passed, it could have crossed our orbit like this. Um, the planets are on relatively the same planes. You know, if you have the orbit of Earth, here's the Sun and the orbit of Mars. And sometimes they cross a little bit like this. But they're all on relatively the same plane, the planets in the galaxy. And so, <clears throat> if it passed, they think maybe it passed over the pole and it was enough to disrupt, you know, we're at an angle, we're at a 23 degree angle, it was enough to disrupt the angle so that it would tilt the planet so that the people on the Joshua's day side would have a longer view of the day. Um, you'd have to, it, it would really upset some things and you might have asteroids and stuff like that, you don't know. I, I kind of doubt that connection because um, it wouldn't change the day that much. You might have several hours more of daylight, but the Bible says that there was like a whole day worth of daylight, an extra day worth of daylight, like maybe 24 hours. But uh, it would cause a lot of problems. You know, if the moon, if Mars was that close, you would see the Mars bigger than the moon. And they'd see it in the sky, and you'd have reason to fear that this planet is going to crash into us, and it's causing earthquakes and tidal waves and things because the planet is, is shifting. Um, I tend to think that if Mars ever got that close, more likely it happened during the days of Noah 
because that would be something that would really disrupt the... I mean, you talk about breaking the fountains of the deep open, the gravitational pull of, of Mars being 70,000 miles away would shake up the whole planet. You'd have catastrophes all over the place. So if it ever got that close, I think it was probably more like in Noah's day. But um, anyway, in Second Peter at chapter 3, it says, Above all, understand this. In the last days, blatant scoffers will come being propelled by their own evil urges and saying... Where is His promised return? For ever since our ancestors died, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately suppressed this fact that by the Word of God, heavens existed long ago and an earth was formed out of water and by means of water. And through these things, the world existing at that time was destroyed when it was deluged with water. But by the same Word, the present heavens and the earth have been reserved for fire by being kept for that day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And, and today, I mean, you think about the scientific preaching today, they say that it's all uniform, that we've, things have been around for billions of years, nothing has changed, the orbits are the same, the planets are all aligned the same, there, haven't been big, there hasn't been a global catastrophe, there hasn't been a global flood, God says people are scoffers they are going to be saying that. That it's just been the same for millions of years. Where's your God? What's He doing? He's not doing anything. Nothing's changing. And God says the same way that the world was covered by a flood, it's going to be consumed by fire. And you need to prepare for that judgment day. We don't know what happened for sure when Joshua's thing hit. My guess is it was just purely a miracle that God stopped the... Because not only if you, if you see what God was doing... If you've got, if, to be able to see the sun, the earth, for, for 24 hours of sunlight, the earth would have to, it's spinning counterclockwise, it would have to stop spinning. But the moon is also spinning around the earth counterclockwise. So if you stop the earth to see the sun, the moon would still keep going. So we'd have to stop the earth and the moon in order to have the moon, because that's what the Bible says, the moon stood still and the sun stood still so you'd have to stop the earth spinning and stop the moon spinning which would throw the planet into chaos i mean the oceans would overflow and the, the atmosphere would keep i mean so god would have to stop the oceans from killing us and stop the atmosphere from from causing you know huge storms and everything and and the, the gravity from the moon and the tides and all that and i think god just said you know freeze and it stopped the planet and it stopped the moon and he let people go and he just held everything in place because by his power, the things are held together. And so he just held them together for an extra day and then said, okay, go. When, he was, when they were all done with the battle. So I think it was just purely a miracle. And if the, and if the earth ever did get that close to Mars, I mean, it was, I, I don't doubt that there was a, could have been a 360 day year back in all these ancient cultures who had pretty accurate measurements and we're, you know, had nothing better to do but to count the days until the sun went around. That there very well could have been 360 day years. And as Mars gravity slowed us down as it did these close passbys, that now we have 365 day years. Um, the Earth's orbit—it's really interesting. You know, it goes around in, in this oval shape, but it doesn't ever come back to the same spot ever. It has this, you remember the spirograph, that old toy that you could put a pin in and make these flower designs? That's what the earth does. It then has an oval here, and then has an oval here, and then has an oval here. I mean, this is thousands of years of progression, but that's what it does. And it never comes back to the same spot. And most of the planets do that. They have these oval orbits that, that keep crossing. And it's, and one, it's interesting to think when the, when the sun, when the earth spins around, spins around about a thousand miles an hour at the surface and so if you get it and it spins counterclockwise so if you get in a plane and you start you go up in the air and you start flying let's let's start flying clockwise you start flying this way the earth is spinning opposite you're flying this way 500 miles an hour the earth is spinning and the atmosphere spins with the earth at about a thousand miles an hour that plane is actually flying backwards. Even though you're going this way, you're, you're flying backwards. I mean, that's interesting to think about, isn't it? And if you get in a plane, so if you're flying from, from east to west, you're flying backwards. If you're flying from west to east, 
you're flying at 1,500 miles an hour. So the next time you get on a plane, you think about which way you're going and how fast you're going. And it's, you know, it's crazy to think about, but um, we just are used to the atmosphere flowing with us and all the water and the air just you know, going the same speed as we are, so it's no big deal. Um, and I told you earlier today, I thought I'd explain that. If you don't mind waiting, I'd explain a few more things because we're past time. <laughs> Remember Jupiter, they talked about being able to determine that light had a certain speed by watching it. And as they were measuring it, because here's the sun and here's Jupiter, and you know it goes around in its orbit, and the earth goes around in our, and this isn't to scale, obviously. And so they were able to measure when, when there were eclipses on Jupiter, the moons that went around, you know, hid behind the sun, and they'd be eclipsed. And they said the time that it took for the eclipse to show up back on Earth when we're on this side of the sun was something like 11 minutes. So light would go here and it would bounce back and it would take 11 minutes to be able to see that eclipse come. You know, as they watch the moon disappear in the shadow of Jupiter, there's 11 minutes. But when the Earth is on this side of the sun and you could see a straight line to Jupiter, it took something like 20-something minutes for the, for the, to be able to see that same eclipse. And that's how they decided well, light must have a speed. And they were able to kind of guesstimate what the speed of light was. Um, so we talked about Mars orbits and Earth orbits um, and different... The Earth is at a tilt and it's, it's at a tilt that kind of wobbles over thousands of years. It wobbles. And so right now, if you look up at the sky, our... We've got a north star that we follow. It's Polaris. No, I forget the name of it. But thousands of years ago, it's recorded in ancient history that we had a different north star. That the, I think it was Draco, you know, thousands of years ago that cultures measured that star. And then there was another star. Is it Vega? I think it's called Draco A or something. But there's different stars that have become our north star because the, the Earth's tilt wobbles some, and so we have measured over thousands of years different stars to be able to navigate by. And, and what's real interesting to think about is, is not only is our planet wobbling, it's also in this elliptical orbit rather than a circle, but at the same, and all the, and all the other planets in our galaxy are also in these elliptical orbits. What's really wild to think about is that the, you see it a lot of times as the sun and a circle and a circle and a circle. And if you, if you stood it on end, you'd see a sun and lines that all went together like this as if we're just hanging out in one spot and all the planets are going around the sun. When in truth, the sun is traveling around the center of the galaxy, so the sun is driving in a direction. And all these planets are circling around in this helical tornado-like shape. So the sun is, is going around the galaxy... In, a, in one direction, and these planets are spinning around. And if you, drew, if you, nav, if you, you know, mapped it out, you've had this great, it would look like DNA, you know, that double helix DNA pattern, except now you've got all these planets creating these lines that are you know, spinning around as we're going in a direction. And it gets even more interesting than that. What they propose is that here's the galaxy. So the center of the galaxy, and we don't know what's in the center of the galaxy, where it's a massive, supermassive star or a black hole or whatever. And then you've got all these other stars that are spread out like this. So there, it's this disk that they talk about that's got huge gravity because it spins around so fast. And so there's more gravity here than there is up here. And so what they say is that the sun travels through the galaxy like a dolphin jumping through the ocean. So it goes this way, and then gravity pulls it back towards the disk, and it goes. And if you see the galaxy like this, the sun's way out here. You know, we're not even close to the center, but it's jumping around the edge of the galaxy right now. We are at a 60-degree angle, heading this direction, and we're about a hundred light years from the edge of the galaxy. So we're outside of the, the edge of the galaxy, or the yeah, and it's a 60-degree angle, and we're shooting up away from it. Now, here's the, the crazy thing. They say that it's taken three million years for us to go from this point to this point, 
And it's going to take another 30 million years for us to get bent down into there. So it, they have no idea. Because no one's been around that long. It's all just guesswork. But, but we can measure that we are at this jumping out of the galaxy angle and, and, and that the sun is traveling and all the planets are spinning around like these crazy, you know, if you've ever seen the blue angels fly in circles and do these acts. It's like if you saw the planets, it's these acrobatic, and the planets are spinning around the sun and all the moons of those planets are spinning around this planet. So it's, it's this crazy mix of planets spinning around as the sun shoots through the, the universe at, you know, 100 miles per second, oh, much faster than that. It's, and it's crazy speeds that we're thinking about how we're flying through space. It's also crazy that the, the galaxy is shaped like a UFO. That's just ironic. <laughs> but, um, so the, the sun is doing this jumping move, supposedly, out of the galaxy, but we'll never know because no one's going to be around for 30 million years to watch it go back in. But it's all just guesses. I mean, the people who are, who are doing this work about how long we've been here and where we're going, they're just making guesses because there's no way to measure it. There's, I mean, we can measure where we are. We can measure where the planets are, but we don't know where they were and we don't know where they're going because who knows what kinds of things we'll run into as we're flying through space at, at crazy speeds. It's all just guesses about what happened. But we've got this book that I talked about today that says how we got here and why we're here. And the way we got here was a miracle. God said, let there be. And this amazing miracle happened. And there, and it was. There was light and there were planets and there were stars. I mean, and, and the billions and trillions of stars in our galaxy and billions and trillions of galaxies in the universe. And God just said, let there be stars to light the night sky. Because I think they'd be really pretty for people back on earth to see. Let there be. And all these billions and trillions of massive speeding objects just appeared. And, and that's the power of our God. Yeah, it's just it's, it's kind of an average star. It's nothing special about the sun. Well, there are some special things about the sun, but it's not its size. The, the, most stars are not very regular in how they burn. So sometimes they're brighter and sometimes they're dimmer, you know, that, which means they're hotter or colder. Our sun is a steady, steady flame all the time. Yeah, that's good for us. If it wasn't that way, we'd all be dead. So we're very thankful that we've got this star. That, but it's, it's, not, it's an average size. It's not very big compared to a lot of stars. And, and another interesting thing about the sun, we don't really know how it works. The, the sun... It doesn't burn hydrogen, you know, like you remember when the Hindenburg went up because it had hydrogen in it and it went like a flash and it was down in, in you know, a couple of minutes, it was gone. If the sun burned hydrogen like that, it would also be gone. You know, it would take a few thousand years and the sun would burn out. But it fuses hydrogen into helium. It takes the gravity, sucks these hydrogen atoms in, it smashes them together and it releases a proton and, and turns hydrogen, which is the that one proton, one neutron, into helium, which has the combination, which is a little heavier, and that releases energy in the form of heat and light. And that's what heats our galaxy and allows the sun to burn as long as it's been burning nice and steady and warm and bright. And, and what's interesting is there is not enough gravity in the sun to pull the hydrogen atoms together to smash them in order to release the energy. And so they've come up with quantum tunneling. I've talked about that before. It takes quantum physics, which are, you know, from a macro scale, the way we look at, impossible, but it happens, and the sun burns at this nice steady space. So we really don't know for... We've got theories about how it works, but we really don't know for sure how the sun burns the way it does. So nice and so clear and so bright and keeps us warm and, and toasty in the summer and, and helps the trees to grow and helps the crops to produce fruit and... And then we have a nice cool time in the, in the winter. And, and so it's all just guesses. It's miracle. It's miracle. I mean, God used miracles to create the, the universe and to create the planets and to create us. And, you know, it started with miracles. He continues to interject miracles as we go. I mean, amazing things happen that are outside of the scope of science when we see people healed from blindness and diseases and, and things that they, there's no answer for the, other than... God must have done it. I mean, the, 
maybe we'll discover things that how God, you know, as we investigate, we'll see more how God works and what an amazing God He is. But God continues to interject miracles into our existence. And at the end, it's going to be a miracle that destroys the, the galaxy, the universe with fire. That things He says He's going to consume it all with fire. And there's energy in this. I mean, there's energy in all these stars. There's energies in the fabric of space-time. I mean, we can talk about that some other time. But there's that God can just say and set the universe on fire if He wanted to. And that's what He's going to do. And, and so it's going to end with a miracle. And we're surrounded by miracles. This miracle God that does miracle things that we have no idea how it works, but God does. And we're very grateful that we have a God that does that. So I just thought it would be fun to share some of these things about you know, how space things that people used to worship that we can understand and see how they interact with biblical stories and how some of it's you know scientifically explained some of it's just beyond our ability to explain and we just we just say uh-huh yeah <laughs> right so my suggestion is to keep fearing and honoring the lord and living for him because Nobody else can control all this stuff. Nobody else has a hand on this, much less our own personal lives. So you turn your life over to God and He'll give you the right direction and the right path and help you to live the way He's called you to live. And whatever you need in order to live the way He's called you to live and do what He's commanded you to do, the God who did all this can provide. Let's pray. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. (laughs) Jeff, do you want to say something? Right. Yeah. Right. It's, a, it's amazing what God can do. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. For the, the just, we thank you not only that you have power to do whatever it is that you say you're going to do, but that you have character that's a good character. That we can trust that we can see your character in the things that you've made. And we can see your invisible attributes in your creation. And we can see that you're a good God and a powerful God and a, and, a, and a just God, but also a merciful and forgiving God. And we thank you for the God that you are. And we thank you for everything that you do for us, for everything you provide for us, for the sunshine that, that warms us and, and grows our crops, for the moonlight and the stars that give us beauty in the sky to look at at night, for all the beautiful things that you've made, Lord, and all the wonders that you've created. We thank you that we get to be a part of it that we get to live here and see what you've done and, and glorify you and honor you and all the things that you've allowed to happen. We thank you for your blessings in our personal lives and in our families. And we ask that you would continue to take care of us, continue to bless us, continue to watch over us as we put our trust completely in you rather than in what man and in what man can do. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.